0: We pray for our veterans today. Please bow with me. Our father who is in heaven today, we honor our veterans worthy men and women who have given their best when they were called upon to serve and protect our country. We pray that you will bless them for their unselfish service and the continual struggle to preserve our freedoms, our safety and our country's heritage for all of us. And may we, as believers, show the same spirit when called upon by you to serve our brothers and sisters in Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're in the book of Revelation. We will finish today our series on the seven churches. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and turn there. And once you find it, if we wouldn't mind standing, today we're in Revelation 3, verse 14. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The word of the Lord. Let us pray for his blessing on our time as we look at his word, bow together. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for another opportunity to serve you and to serve your people. When your son, the Lord Jesus, preached on the earth, he found the divine words that were able to reach the hearts of his hearers. Your truth moved them deeply and prompted them to follow him and to live for you. Heavenly Father, by your Holy Spirit, speak through this communicator of your word. Allow me to forget myself, my shortcomings, any effect that I might want to produce, so that I can speak solely and in all truth of you and your teaching. Please help me to say the things that all the listeners await, something that truly comes from you, laden with your love, filled with your wisdom, which is not the wisdom of this world. And I ask that you give to the hearers a good spirit so that they may really hear your word. Help us to welcome welcome your word as the living word of God and allow it to work in us so that we may take it home with us and so that a bit of the church may spring up where we are so that our weight may be filled with the gift of your grace let us not forget what we have heard but rather build upon it give us the love it takes to build let us love others Remain the light of our days, become the goal of our love, and bestow on us through this message a new life in your faith, a life that is both filled with prayer and works of love. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As far back as I can remember my own life, he was my best friend. See, our parents had been friends, and as a result, we had a chance to grow up together, and as a result of that, we ended up becoming friends. For the first couple of years of elementary school, we attended the same elementary school, and on our rides home in the evenings after school, we would sit together on the bus. In our middle school years, we played at each other's houses, and there were times where we spent a night at each other's homes. I knew his family, and he knew mine. Even though we had moved apart in high school, that is, went to different school districts, he ended up moving into my school district. And I remember our freshman year, he got me to play football, and we both played on the freshman team together during our freshman year and hung out through high school until I transferred to another high school. As we started to enter our adult years, we began to pursue some different things in life. Uh, work for him and college for me, but we stayed in touch throughout that time. But when I moved from Houston to Dallas to attend seminary, things changed. I lost touch. And what once had been a close relationship became a distant one. Now, there were times over the years that he had reached out to me to, to check on me and see how I was doing. And I would always promise myself if I, after I got that call or He had reached out through my parents that I was going to reach out to him later, just after I finished what I needed to do. See, I had selfishly allowed the demands of my time to occupy myself, and I kept reassuring myself in the back of my mind that when I finished this or that, I would connect. But the clock kept ticking. And before I knew it, years had slipped away. So this summer, I had the rare opportunity to return to Houston, as you know, to to go home. And I made a determination that I was going to see my friend when I went home this summer. So I asked my mother to get his contact information because she was going to be at a funeral where he was at. And she did, and she gave that information to me, and I texted him and told him when I was going to be there and asked him if we could get together. And he doesn't live in Houston anymore. He's not lived there for a number of years, and... But we ended up connecting and sat down at a mall. that was about halfway between my parents' house and where he now lived. And we sat down in the food court and ate and laughed. And I caught up what it, about what had happened in his life and told him what happened in mine. I met his fiance, saw his kids who I hadn't seen since they were infants. And now they were fully grown and living their own lives. And he got a chance to meet my wife and my kids who he had last time he saw me. I wasn't even married. And I cannot tell you the joy that I felt. To sit across the table from my friend and see him face to face again. Do you know what that's like? Have you ever had a relationship in your life that was once close, but now it had become distant? Now, I want to acknowledge, listen, there are times when relationships become distanced for a variety of reasons, and there are even times when relationships need to become distanced because of the nature of the relationship. But there are some relationships in our lives that we want to avoid becoming distant. For instance, if you're married here today and not everyone is married, but if you are married, you don't want your relationship with your spouse to become described as a, a distant one. You're living in the house, but you might as well be living in different countries because you're not connected at all. If you're a Christian, I would encourage you, you shouldn't be disconnected from other believers and definitely not from your local church. That ought not to be a a distant relationship. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, we cannot afford to have a distant relationship with him. Now, if you wonder why I make that statement, the text is going to tell you why that is the case. We're going to see that in this last church of Revelation, of what happens when we allow our relationship with Jesus to become a distant relationship. So today we continue our journey through the last sightseeing destination on this, through, this trip through the opening chapters of Revelation. Uh, we, we've left the city of Philadelphia and now we've traveled some 30 miles southeast to the city of Laodicea. We know from Paul's letter that he wrote to the believers in the city of Colossae some 30 or so years earlier that the church at that time was meeting in the house of a lady by the name of Nympha. Now it may not be the case that when this letter was written that those things were still true. Uh, Perhaps Nympha had passed on to be with the Lord and they were now meeting in a new home or several homes at this point because maybe the church had grown over those 30 years. We're not sure. We just know what had happened in the past.
1: But if you remember,
0: as we worked our way through the cities, we learned some different things along this journey. One of the key things that we found out is that each set of believers in each city were in a different spiritual state. Some were in a better spiritual state than others, like Smyrna and Philadelphia. Others, although they were doing some things right, there were still some things that needed correction, like Ephesus and Pergamum and Thyatira, and there was even one church that was in a dire condition, Sardis. But TCL, the church of Laodicea, fell into this last category. Now, whereas the Lord had no corrective advice for the churches at Smyrna and Philadelphia, all he has for Laodicea is rebuke. So let me lay out for you where I'm going to go in this brief time that we're going to spend today looking at this text. First, we're going to see the problems that's going on with this church, the ones we're going to want to avoid collectively as a church and individually as believers. And then we're going to hear the solution that Jesus offers that we ought to accept collectively as a church and then individually as believers. So let's start off with the problems that this church was facing. There are two problems in the text that Jesus highlights about this church. Their works And their perception of themselves, their works and their perception of themselves. Let's address the works first. As the Lord has stated in the text to all of the churches, he says to them, at least most of them, uh, I know your works, just like he knows our works. He knew what they were doing or what they were not doing, as well as the motives that were driving or keeping them from moving in the direction that they needed to go. Remember he said earlier to the church at Thyatira, he is the one who searches both mind and heart. You're fully exposed to him. I'm fully exposed to him. And as I'm sure you noted, as I read the text, that Jesus mentions their works three times in the text. Verse 15 and 16, and he describes them with words that we're familiar with. Cold and hot. Now here a little historical background is helpful. So the city of Laodicea had a positive reputation for a number of things, but their water source was not one of them. The city of Hierapolis, which was about six miles to the north, was known for its hot springs, and Colossae, which was to the south, was known for its cold water. But since Laodicea did not have its own natural resource, it had to to have the water piped into the city. And what happened is, is as the water traveled over this distance, it lost that temperature. One scholar here helps us understand the significance of this historical evidence. He writes, the hot waters of Heropolis had a medicinal effect and the cold waters of Colossae were pure, drinkable, and had a life-giving effect. Another author, I like the way he gives us kind of insight into this. He says, look, hot water is useful for cooking, washing clothes, and bathing. And cold water is needed to slake our thirst. Now, different than most of us might think here in the text, cold and hot are not opposite poles. Both are good in the Lord's estimation. What he's saying is that neither hot nor cold describes How Laodicea was. As one commentator puts it, their works were like not like cold water that refreshes, or like hot water that soothes and stimulates. Instead, what the Lord exclaims about them is that I find your temperature to be lukewarm. What he's saying here is that you are ineffective in your spiritual witness, and as a result, you are useless. You're not what I desire from my people. I like the way Kevin DeYoung describes this being lukewarm. He says, it's living like you don't need God. It's living like you don't need God. Now, if you want to do a little more delving into this topic, a number of years ago, our community group had a chance to read a book about this. Some of you may have read it. It's called The Christian Atheist. Believing in God, but living as if he doesn't exist. By Craig Groeschel, you might want to check that out. It's helpful. But it's it's Jesus' response that is the most startling to this church, this group of believers in Laodicea. In his response, the the Lord says, let me draw upon a custom that you practice in your own life. And I'm going to treat you like you do with things that you don't like when you taste them. You want to spit or vomit them out. And that's what I plan to do to you. Put a modern twist on this, I like the way Doctor Craig Keener brings it across in a modern language when he describes how Jesus feels, and he communicates it this way. It's as if Jesus said, "I want water that will refresh me, but you remind me instead of that water that you always complain about. You make me want to puke." Now think about that for a moment. Here's a group of believers that, when Jesus looks at how they live, or how they're not living out their faith as his witnesses, he feels sickened by them. Now, that would be enough to go on, but that's not their only problem in the text. The believers who formed the church of Laodicea had no idea about the deplorable state of their witness, and that's what makes this all the more alarming. Jesus sees them differently than they actually see themselves. We might call it a lack of self-awareness or even self-deception, and perhaps you've noticed the negative consequences when someone is self-deceived or lacks self-awareness. Let me give you a few illustrations of how this sometimes plays out in life. It's the guy who's in a pleasant conversation, and as he's talking and as he's having this conversation, someone leans over to him and whispers, hey, adjust your zipper. It's the lady who's laughing and giggling and having a great time only to find out, as a friend points out, you got something in your teeth. It's the person who volunteers, perhaps they have been told all their life that they have a mellifluous voice and they're excited about singing. And so they get up in church or wherever they're at, a wedding or wherever, and they start to, to sing as they start to make it. And people are in the, pray, in the pew and they start to bend their heads down to begin to pray, Lord, bring this song to an end. It's the person who's at work whose performance is poor and they don't realize it. And it's the person who's in a relationship and based on their personality and the way that they interact with others, they make it hard for people to want to stay in relationship with them and they don't realize it and can't see it. See, a lack of self-awareness can be embarrassing and at times, harmful. That's the problem with Laodicea. They viewed themselves because of their money and possessions as not being in need of anything. In their estimation, they were royalty. They had arrived. They had everything that a church would want. The language is similar to that of Hosea chapter 12, verse 8. And in light of that, they viewed themselves as self-sufficient. See, they had adopted the attitude that the city had. So around AD 60 to 61, there had been a great earthquake in that area, and the city had suffered damage along with the other cities in the area. And so the the Roman government said, Hey, listen, we want to send some imperial aid, some finances to help you uh, restore and and rebuild. And the city said out of all the cities, Hey, we don't need your help. Thank you. We have so much wealth in our city that our own citizens will finance the reconstruction of our city. So thank you, but no thank you. It would be like today if you just said, hey, we had disaster, but uh, FEMA, no thank you. Our city will rebuild itself. And sadly, in this case, it is like city, like church. The attitude that was in the city had infiltrated the church. And it seems that From this, that they were thinking to themselves that they were coming to this wrong conclusion about where they were at, that their material wealth meant that they had heavenly approval. I'm doing well, so God must be blessing me, so God must like me, and I must be okay. However, their self evaluation was grossly overrated. Because God always sees everything clearly and accurately. And so Jesus exposes their true state of affairs with five words. Wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, I don't know if you've ever been described in that way, but it is not a flattering description. Remember Smyrna? They were economically impoverished, but spiritually they were wealthy. Laodicea, they were economically secure, but spiritually bankrupt. So what was going on in Laodicea that caused this situation? I have to follow Dr. Beale. here. I think his insights proved most helpful out of all the sources that I read. He says their issue was them being witnesses for Christ in their city. Now, he bases this conclusion on two observations in the text. And one We notice that in each letter we walk through that Jesus tailored his introduction of himself, the way he described himself, had to do with the needs that the church was facing. And in this text, he describes himself as the the Amen, the Hebrew version of the thing that he goes on later to say, the faithful and true witness. They're they're not being good witnesses because he is the true witness, and that's what they need to be. In addition, if we look at all the letters, we notice that every letter... To each church is, is, is sit around this idea or this concept of what kind of witness are you? And they're either praised or corrected based on the type of witness that they're being for Christ in their particular location. See how people were living and representing him in the world mattered to Jesus. There were those who were believers in their cities and they were struggling, and some we were even struggling as we read about and heard about in churches. They were tempted to compromise with the culture, and some had even compromised. But this group of believers have fully embraced it. Most likely they were still meeting as a church because this letter was read in their hearing, and they don't have any idea that they're being a bad witness. And in light of that evidence, it seems reasonable to think that they had fallen prey to what the other churches had been warned against, that they had gone over to eating in temples to preserve their business relationships, which afforded them the ability to generate that great wealth. But in Jesus' perspective, amounted to idolatry. So whereas other believers in other cities were suffering loss because they were willing to identify with Jesus, these believers most likely were profiting because they were not identifying with Jesus. And if this was the case, then we know from all the other letters that they were doctrinally compromised and perhaps even ethically compromised. There may have been some immorality going on in the the background. See, it seems like their faith in Jesus was not impacting their lives outside of their church meetings. And since they were not openly making any decisions that identified them as Christians in their society, they never faced any real resistance in the culture. They were affluent, probably located in a good neighborhood, but they were spiritually apathetic. So here are a few warnings based On what we learn about the Lord Jesus and his view of TCL. One, be careful not to assume that material prosperity means that the Lord is pleased with the way you're being a witness in the culture, either as a church or as individual believers. Money doesn't mean that God likes what you're doing. In addition, Please don't make the error on the other side by thinking that not having possessions means that you have Jesus's approval. Instead, what we ought to ask ourselves is what kind of witnesses are we? Are we willing to be identified with Jesus outside of church meetings? Are we growing in love for God and other people and is that producing good works in our lives? Are we teaching doctrine that leads to a life of holiness? And are we in our individual lives and collectively as a church practicing holiness? And are we when faced with opposition maintaining faith in Jesus Christ? See, Dr. Keener warns believers against physical wealth and spiritual poverty. And his concern becomes all the more relevant when we consider our place globally and not just in our own country. As of a study done in 2021, the average American household earns within the top 10% bracket of all earners in the entire world. If you're in the average American household, you're at the top. The U.S. holds approximately as of 2021 one third of all the world's wealth. You want to look for the money? It's right here. And in light of that reality, because of our great affluence, we have to be careful to not fall prey to the temptation to become self-reliant. See, when you have resources, it's very easy to start to depend upon the resources that you have and not on God and not on Jesus. And one of the ways that that often manifests manifests itself in our lives is there's a lack of prayer. In our lives, we struggle with wanting to pray because we struggle to sense a need for God in our lives. So if I have what I need and I don't feel like God needs to help me, then why would I be talking to him? We might choose to make decisions based on our finances instead of asking God, what is it that you want to do? I know I have the money to do this, but is this the direction you actually want me to go in? These ultimately are your resources at the end of the day. How am I to use them? Or is it just simply you just make the decision? You don't consult God. You just do what you think is best. Similarly, one of the other effects we have to watch out for is that our comfort can cause us to have no feeling, of interest, or concern for the plight of other believers in other parts of the world. We can easily be so concerned about maintaining our position in the life and enjoying life in the way we want it and trying to preserve that kind of life that we want that all of our energy gets spent on self-focus and no looking outside of ourselves. Often it's much easier for people outside of our culture to see the danger that sometimes lurks in the background, that we can become more concerned about material possessions than spiritual matters. There was a young man who was attending a seminary. He was from a country in Africa, and he was in a seminary class in one of his preaching classes, and he had heard some different sermons, and he was sharing some thoughts with his other seminarians who were there. And he, and he said this to them. He says, I've been in the United States for several months now, and I've seen the great wealth that is here, the fine homes and cars and clothes. And I've listened to many sermons in churches who are here, too. But I've yet to hear one sermon about heaven. Because everyone has so much in this country, no one preaches about heaven. People here don't seem to need heaven. In my country, most of the people have very little, so we preach on heaven all the time. We know how much we need it. Does your heart long for heaven, or do you already have it? So what's the solution that Jesus offers to us if we find ourselves in this position potentially? Well, the answer to our failings as being witnesses for Jesus is a renewed relationship with him. What does Jesus offer as a solution? He offers himself. But this restored relationship that he's offering comes with conditions. We'll see that in verses 18 through 20. We see him unpack this in several ways. First, he talks about the solution, he paints it, with the title that he gives about himself as he introduces himself in the text. Notice here in the text what he says. He is the beginning of God's creation. The word translated here as beginning could also be rendered, ruler, origin, and depending on which way you render it depends on how you interpret the text. Here I'm going to stay with beginning. I believe Dr. Beale again has the most convincing argument. And I believe here that what Jesus is pointing to is His resurrection body. That is the beginning of God's new creation. See, the focus is not so much on his deity, because he's always existed, but on his humanity. And that when he was raised from the dead, God started to create again, and he is the first of the very new creation that God is going to make. And why would Jesus raise this idea or, or concept about resurrection light and a new start and a new creation? Because that's exactly what the church needs. They need resurrection power because their witness is dead and to be able to live out as new creations in the world. We see the solution of Jesus in verses 18 through 20 as he uses two images to describe this relationship. First, he portrays himself as a merchant in verse 18. Notice what he offers to them, three things. He says he's going to offer to them gold refined by fire. That means that it's gold that has all of the dross removed. It's the purest of gold. White garments, which point, as we read through the book of Revelation, to the righteousness of God and salve to anoint their eyes. And this is what Jesus has put on sale to them. Because the imagery he chooses addresses the need that, that they have. Remember what he said about them? They were poor, blind, and naked. So Jesus says, I'll give you real wealth, I'll give you real clothes, and I will heal your sight. And by doing this, he contrasts himself with the culture. See, Laodicea had become a wealthy city, as we talked about earlier, and they had three main industries that they were known for. That was the industry of finance, we might call it banking. They had a medical school, which was well-known. Even, we even have some of the names of the physicians that were there and created some of the things that they had done. And then they were known for their textile industry. So specifically, they were known through history, which was recorded in some sources for this black, shiny wool that they could produce garments and carpets from that others desired to have. We even have one of the names of one of the guilds preserved through history. It was called the Most August Guild of Wool Washers. And they were also the Florida of their day. When people wanted to retire, they made their way to Laodicea. But in the text, the words that Jesus emphasizes here in this verse is from me. From me. In essence, Jesus lays out the culture which they've been clamoring after, thinking that the culture has what they need. And what Jesus says is, What you really need is what I have to offer. It's not the culture, it's me. That's what you need. The question then becomes if we're spiritually impoverished, if we're spiritually bankrupt, then how in the world can I buy goods? from Jesus when I don't have anything to purchase them with. Well, notice the currency that Jesus uses in the text at the end of verse 19. Be zealous and repent. Jesus says if we find ourselves in a place similar to the believers in Laodicea or any of the other churches that have some sort of spiritual deficiency, then follow his instructions. He wants us to change our minds about how we see ourselves, that's repentance, and pursue a different way of life. Here, the way the text phrases it, it's a decisive change of the act of the will to pursue with all the enthusiasm to live a life dedicated to Jesus Christ. Let me give you an example of what this might look like. So uh, I have a relative and years ago, uh, he had smoked for most of the years of his life he came to a point in his life where he wanted to become free from smoking and so he took that to the Lord and he started praying Lord deliver me from smoking and one day not long after that when he went to light up a cigarette and he went to take a draw and he had a sharp pain in his chest and of course because of his addiction at the time he, he went to take another puff and another sharp pain hit him in the chest again he put the cigarette down and every time he wanted to go for a few days, a few weeks after that, he kept getting this sharp pain in his chest to the final. He got to the side. He said, you know what? I think I'm going to put these cigarettes down. And that's exactly what he did. And 30 years have passed and he's never smoked another cigarette again. That's what repentance is. And he began to live in a new, new way. What Jesus is saying to us is get serious about your relationship with Jesus now. Don't put it off to the future. We find the second picture in verse 20. But this is one that we would not expect of Jesus. Jesus portrays himself as the guest, not the host, but the guest. Here the Lord turns from the focus of us as a group. If the Lord was addressing us first, he's talking to us as a church. But now he shifts his focus to look at each individual believer sitting in the chair. He's not talking to us anymore. He's talking to each one of you. That's what's happening in the text at this point. And Jesus wants to make you, as the individual, an offer. Now, the believers in the church all have one thing in common in Laodicea. Everybody has a distant relationship with Jesus. Now, you remember when Bongo preached on Sardis, and he talked about they were dead and they were dying. But even there, in that church, as bad as the situation where Jesus said, there's a few of you who've been walking with me. And I still got a good group in there. The the, the majority may be bad, but I got a few of you who've been faithful. Laodicea, nobody's faithful. The whole group, the whole lot. Everybody has a distant relationship with Jesus. So Jesus pictures himself as a guest. Now, this is what is astonishing about it. In the church's blindness, the church doesn't realize that through their actions, they have excommunicated Jesus From the church. They put Jesus out of their fellowship. They're worshiping. They're gathering. They're getting together every week. But Jesus is uninvited. The way he phrases, he indicates that he's been standing outside the door for some time. And he's been knocking on the door of the church. Now I was talking to Elder Pat about this. And you know Pat always has a good way of putting things. He put it like this, and I like the way he said it, The party was so loud in the inside that they, they didn't realize that Jesus was on the outside and they couldn't hear him knocking. But as in his immense kindness and grace, Jesus offers to every believer who has a distant relationship with him to have a renewed relationship. He, he says to you, and he says to me, if, if you found yourself distant from him, whoever will open the door, I will come in. And I'll eat with you and you with me. So on Friday night, uh, we were uh, at our house and my wife had invited some some friends over from our church family. So I went downstairs when they arrived and I opened the door and they came in and took off their shoes and we came upstairs and they brought snacks and we had snacks laid out and we sat down for hours that evening on Friday evening. and We played all kinds of different games and lagged and did silly stuff and we ate food and just enjoyed each other's company. And that's the picture that Jesus has in this text here. It's a picture of intimacy and a picture of trust. And that's what Jesus is offering to you. He's saying to you, why don't you dine with me? Why don't we get back together? Why don't you and let me into the house and we can hang out again like we used to at one point. But the offer is for each believer who is here. How, how do I know this? Well, we see the Lord's heart in verse 19. Notice what Jesus says. Those whom I love, I reprove. And discipline be zealous and repent see we get a we get a picture of this every time there's a loving parent who maybe takes their child after something has happened to the side and corrects them why do parents do that who love their children because they want to steer them in the right direction because they know there's something worse up ahead and they want to avoid it and so they say hey listen son or daughter i know you did this or that but let me tell you, this is the right way to go. And so they correct them and lead them. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. Because Jesus loves us, he corrects us and he disciplines to us. Listen to Paul after talking about as we quoted in a sermon earlier, a few weeks ago, how he talked about God disciplining them. But listen what Paul goes on to say about the Lord's discipline. But if we judge ourselves truly, we will not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned alone with the world. God is a good parent, and like any good parent, when his children start to stray, God engages in correction. Why? Because he loves you. And what does the Scripture say? You know the temptation that we always face when our parents or someone corrects us. There's a, a, a desire, an inward inclination to want to spurn them. And so what the Scripture says is, when the Lord disciplines you, don't despise what he's doing in your life. We see this in texts like Proverbs three eleven, Job five seventeen, and Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 11. See, Jesus' solution to their problem and to our problems is this, him. A relationship with him, even when what he has to say to you is difficult. Just in case you question the authenticity of Jesus' love, notice in the text, verse 21, the promise that he makes to those who are erring or straying away who have a distant relationship with him. He promises them the exact same reward that he had promised to the other churches if they would be faithful witnesses of him, to share in his rule. Now, this church is in the worst spiritual condition, and you might think that it would be okay if Jesus said, listen, you've been so messed up, you've been so bad. Look, if you just get on the other side, that'll be good enough. But he says to them, listen, if you conquer, if you become faithful witnesses by returning to me, then as a result, I'll let you rule with me. He says, if you turn, then I'll give you true riches, riches that will last. And so the question is, if you have a distant relationship today, I want you to know that Jesus is knocking on the door. And what he's asking is, will you? Not the person sitting next to you, but will you today open the door to have a relationship with Jesus again? Some of you may know Kathy Triccoli, who has been a successful Christian singer, songwriter, author and speaker for over the last three decades. Now Kathy says that she initially grew up in a home that wasn't really religious. as a matter of fact, she says. The Bible in her family was a book on the coffee end table that no one ever touched. I hope that's not true in any of our houses. I hope you touch your Bible every now and then and read it. But for her, a change came in 1978 when she was working at a summer local pool. Kathy's spirituality was challenged by another person who was there. There was always this girl who worked with her that every time there was a lunch break, she had her Bible out and she was always reading it. And Kathy, after repeated pattern of behavior over time, noticed that this was a consistent pattern in this girl's life. And so she went to talk to her colleague about this love for the Bible that she had seen evident by observing her life over time. And she began to ask her questions about her relationship with the Lord and why she read her Bible like that. And this is what Kathy said when the young lady answered her. She said, I have never heard about Jesus in the way that she described him to me. See, this co-worker had a close relationship with Jesus. She was on fire for Jesus. And as a result, that played out in her life. And this other person who was nominally Christian or on the outside or who just had some religious uh, uh, affiliation saw what was going on and said, whatever she's got, I don't have that. But I want to find out what that is that she has. And so her friend then gave her a New Testament, invited her to church where later Kathy would go on to commit her life to Christ. See, Kathy's journey started in faith because a coworker was faithfully living out her witness for Jesus in the public square. And like that coworker, we want to be found as well as faithful witnesses to Jesus because we're in a close relationship with him. Today you have the choice. You can be hot or cold for Jesus, but I would warn you, don't be lukewarm. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. And we thank you for this opportunity as we are encouraged to have a relationship with you. That what you offer to to be the solution of our problem is not something that's in this world, but it's you yourself. And what we need to correct our wayward behavior, wherever we strayed off, is ultimately, Lord, to reconnect with you. And in your grace, you don't cast us away, but you stand at the door knocking. Asking if we were willing to open a door and renew a relationship with you. May our hearts be soft. May they be willing. And may we not, Lord, leave this place today knowing that we are in a distant relationship and think that it's okay to continue in that direction. May we, like you said, repent. And may we, with all of our energy, that you provide, move in a new direction. And we thank you, Lord, for the church, that as we collectively get to pool our resources together to to be witnesses for you by using those resources to minister to those in the world to do good works, would you bless your people? Would you remember us now, Lord, as we prepare to take this offering? In Jesus' precious and powerful name, Amen. amen. So we have our communication card that uh, was spoken about by Elder Jim Benna uh, earlier. If you haven't had a chance to fill yours out, I'm going to ask you to take it out now before those who are serving as our greeters